welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, the Dark Wizard of the Upside Down, the greatest living American writer, Neil Pollock, the editor in chief of Book and Film Globe. www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a terrific episode for you to kick off the month of July. Michael Washburn will be here to talk to me about the new adaptation of Balzac's Lost Illusions, a French film that is finally making its way into American cinemas everywhere. And we're also going to talk to Rachel Llewellyn about everything that is streaming on your TV streaming services, TV streaming services, your streaming services. You can watch them on any device coming up this month of July. But first, we're going to talk to Kaveh Jalinas, a new Book and Film Globe contributor who's been writing some terrific pieces for us. He has a piece this week about the movie Lightyear and why it flopped. It's gotten a lot of attention and uh, has created a lot of controversy. And we'll be right back with Kaveh after this musical intro. So we've talked about Lightyear, the recent Pixar movie, on the show. Uh, we had a review of it, but Lightyear has generated quite a few headlines and quite a bit of controversy. And it's also been a notorious box office disappointment in a summer where um, movies have kind of returned and people are going back to the movies. And But Lightyear, which seemed to be kind of a, a surefire thing, uh, given that it was a kids movie put out by Pixar, has not met expectations. And Book and Film Globe contributor Kabe Jalinas is here with me to talk about it. Hello. Hello. How are you? I am good. So you wrote a great piece for us this week about Lightyear, and the piece was called Is Lightyear Too Woke? And the reason you titled it that is, well, because there has been some political controversy around this movie. Maybe you could describe it a little bit. Yeah. So basically, as I tried to say in the article, trying to figure out what the controversy is is super odd to me because there's no clear reason. It just seems like people want to be mad just for the sake of being mad. But to center it on one thing in particular, I guess there is in this long montage that is by far the, the best part of Lightyear, um, which we can get into in a little bit. There is one scene, two seconds long, blink and you miss it, where two same-sex characters kiss. And I don't know if it's because Lightyear was the first Pixar movie back in theaters or if people are just finding kids' movies easier to target upon because they're meant for a younger audience. But it seems to have ignited the most absurd, largest controversy. And there's been a lot of repercussions. Field trips have been canceled to go see the movie. As I mentioned in the article, a theater in Oklahoma is trying to, or was trying to fast forward through this scene. But I was as baffled as most when I saw it and really wanted to talk about it because as I mentioned, there are a lot of reasons why this movie failed, probably even more than I mentioned in the article, but I really don't think that this two-second scene is to blame. Well, there's a lot, we've talked about this on the show before, mostly in relation to young adult literature, but there's a lot of panic in our culture right now about sexualizing children and about exposing children to uh, sexual content that um, that they may not have otherwise experienced. I mean, no one's going to say that a Pixar movie contains sexual content. I mean, these are two women who are raising a child and, you know, they, they, um, they share like a brief, almost a, like a chaste kiss, but it, it does fit into this narrative that 
the quote-unquote woke culture is trying to sexualize children, turn them gay, turn them trans, whatever whatever you want to call it. So I feel like in, in attempting to be up to the moment and show, you know, same-sex relationships as normal, maybe Pixar stumbled, inadvertently stumbled into something. This is a tricky one because I personally don't think that that's really a big deal. I think that a lot of people who are criticizing this movie have not seen this movie. And I don't understand the idea of what good is it going to do an adult if they're shielded from everything that someone older than them thinks is not normal from a kid. It only basically allows them to grow up with this really limited worldview, which I think is horrifying and will lead to terrible effects in about 20 years. You know, it's absurd, especially given the vast array of incredibly uh, hard R rated content at our fingertips at all times, you know, oh, that's true. That, you know, something like this is just, it, it, it's kind of meaningless, but that's the context into which this controversy falls. And it's an easy target, right? Because it's a Disney movie and, you know, you wouldn't have seen a same sex kiss in a Disney movie uh, 20 years, 30 years ago, you know, much less 60 years ago. So I think that's, that's the reason why uh, the controversy exists. But your piece was so interesting because it's not the reason why the movie failed. I mean, you know, controversy sells tickets, yeah. right? So you had some other uh, interesting ideas about why things kind of went awry here. Yeah, I think it falls into a larger trend of Pixar is known. And this is something I do mention in the article very briefly, but I did want to expand on it here is that Pixar is that studio and has been that studio that creates these original films and creates these like very, very heartfelt pretty much one and done stories. That's not to say that they haven't made sequels, but I feel like when people think of the iconic Pixar films, myself included, who grew up with this studio, I'm not really considering Cars 2 or Cars 3 or even Monsters University, the core Pixar texts. And I think that Lightyear is even more intense in that element because this isn't even a sequel because Toy Story 2, 3, and 4 are all very critically acclaimed. A lot of people argue that Toy Story 4 doesn't need to exist, which I would honestly agree with. But there's still a lot of heart in that movie. And the funny thing about Lightyear is there's actually like nothing in this movie. That's why I mentioned earlier, like that montage, that's, I don't want to spoil anything about the movie because it's like a pretty significant plot point. But that is the only time in that entire two hour movie that I was like, there's like an element of creative vision and soul here. And it doesn't feel like they just rob me of my money and are throwing images on screen so that I will be somewhat satisfied, if not fully appreciative of the experience. Well, but there's the irony, right? It's like, like you mentioned, like the Pixar sequels have all been mediocre at best, uh, it, with the exception of the Toy Story movies, which have, you know, you know, Toy Story 4 aside, you know, have presented a pretty uh, cohesive story arc, e- each one better uh, reviewed than the next. And Lightyear takes what I would consider uh, Pixar's cornerstone franchise and cheapens it. Yeah, I would completely agree. I also think this is another thing is it came out really soon after Toy Story 4, where I feel like the way Toy Story 4 ends is so conclusive that obviously Lightyear is not even necessary. Like, I still don't know why this movie exists. But the idea of taking this movie three years, which the two years that two of the three years that separate it were like heavy pandemic years where nothing released, including Pixar films. And basically making this be the return to Pixar. I'm not going to count Onward because Onward was out for like a week. But basically, we went from Toy Story 4 essentially to Lightyear in theaters. Just feels a little too soon, especially for a movie that doesn't really appeal to anyone. Yeah, and you, well, and you mentioned too in your, in your piece, I mean, Pixar did have a couple of movies come out, but they were all both on Disney+, Plus, right? They had Soul, um, which was widely praised and Oscar-nominated. 
and turning red, which um, for all the controversy it generated, it generated a lot of controversy, you know, was a, a pretty original piece of work. You know, they could they could have picked either of the I, I guess they didn't really have a choice with Soul, but, you know, they could have released Turning Red in theaters. Turning Red is in my top five Pixar movies ever. Like, I love that movie. And I'm so disappointed they didn't release it in theaters because, as I mentioned in the piece, Lightyear is, this is a Disney Plus movie. Like, I'm fully for the theatrical experience. I don't like watching movies on streaming services. Even the Netflix films I want to see in theaters. But this is a movie that is feels like not different at all from, I believe there's like a Monsters, Inc. TV show on Disney Plus called Monsters at Work or something. This feels like that, where this could have easily been released on Disney Plus. It's like, for people who want to see it and care about the movie that inspired Andy to get the Buzz Lightyear toy, that's not a that's not a theatrical premise. It's like one of those uh, Frozen side projects, like Olaf's Wacky Treasure Hunt or something. That, no, exactly. That... It feels like a short that would play before like Turning Red, honestly. Like the way they used to. I believe there was like a Frozen short before Coco in 2017. Oh, I remember. I remember that. That was the, uh, <laughs> the Olaf Christmas. Uh, short that, that 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 thing i mean i saw coco in a theater in austin with my wife we went to like a late night showing and it was mostly grown-ups and that i mean people were were literally groaning in their seats with the olaf christmas uh short i, I it was I, evil i couldn't it's so long too it, it, it was one of the worst thing it, it, it's the star wars christmas special <laughs> of of uh of pixar it's one of the worst and, and it's vanished. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. Anyway, uh, Lightyear's not that bad, so we'll, we'll, we'll give it some credit there. But um, but you know, your your piece was like you basically said Lightyear didn't flame out because there was a lesbian kiss. Uh, it flamed out because it it's useless and, and it kind of sucks. Yeah, I just I don't know who the audience for this movie is. I really don't. It's honestly quite a shame. I did see it in IMAX and it's like brilliantly fitted for the IMAX screen. Like there's so much craft that was put into like forming it into the certain aspect ratios. But besides that, visuals aside, I, I really don't know who this is for. Even my theater, I was looking around. I was like, there are no kids in this audience at a 12 p.m. showing. Who is going to see this movie unless they really, really like Chris Evans enough to watch him voice a character yeah chris evans i wouldn't i don't call i don't, I don't consider his voice particularly distinctive so <laughs> all right well uh kabe uh thank you so much lightyear is we'll be on disney plus soon where it belongs <laughs> it will live there forever as part of the the back catalog of pixar stuff uh and uh thank you so much for a great piece and we will talk to you soon thanks for having me There is a new adaptation of a classic novel making its way to screens around the country. Well, I guess it's not really a new adaptation. Uh, it came out in France in 2021 and, in fact, won the César, which is kind of the, the French equivalent of the Oscar. Uh, it is an adaptation of Lost Illusions by Honoré de Balzac. It's a classic novel um, from the 1840s, and it's one of my favorite books of all time, and I was very pleased to see that the adaptation uh, was 
faithful to the book and improved upon it even in some ways and certainly updated it to the present day. And I thought, well, who among Book and Film Globe's contributors is going to be familiar with Lost Illusions? And Michael Washburn immediately came to mind, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor, and he's here today to talk to me about the new Lost Illusions movie. Hello, Michael. Hi, Neil. Hey, so yeah, so I, I already emailed with you about this and you agreed with me that this is a just an ac- absolutely excellent adaptation of the novel. I think it's outstanding. And I was delighted to see a film in French and a film that is so lovingly and carefully made. And it really captures the period. I don't think there's a single set in the movie that doesn't feel authentic. And the characters, the dialogue, the atmosphere, everything is so exquisite in its verisimilitude. So I was really blown away by this cinematic experience. Yeah, I really consider it to be one of the best adaptations of classic novel ever put to screen either. Uh, and there have been many good ones, on both on TV and in the cinema. I mean, I, you know, Martin Scorsese's Age of Innocence comes to mind as a great one or, um, I don't know, A Room with a View the Emma Thompson starring Sense and Sensibility. And there have been any a number of excellent, you know, PBS adaptations of Dickens novels or Forrester novels, you know, Brideshead Revisited, et cetera, et cetera. But this one really captures it. And, you know, Lost Illusions is a special book in some ways because it's about something uh, different than what you see a lot of times in classic novels. You know, there are certainly uh, doomed romances in the story, but In reality, this is a book about journalistic and artistic corruption. And to see it portrayed in such a uh, accurate way on on screen was was amazing to me. One thing that's really striking about Balzac's work is the contrast between the revolutionary Jacobin terror that he portrays in certain stories and novels and the bourbon restoration, which we see in this film. And the atmosphere in the terror, I can think of nothing better to compare it to than a very strict COVID lockdown, because people are huddled in fear. They're afraid to go outside. They're afraid of strangers. They're terrified of thinking or saying the wrong thing. And there's this atmosphere of repression and guilt and fear. Contrast that with the exuberance and the gaiety and the cultural flowering that we see in this film, where everybody on the streets of Paris is in such a festive mood and the theater goers are just full of zest for the experience. And uh, the contrast is really remarkable. And that's one thing I love about Balzac. But he is not just a crude right wing propagandist showing you how great everything is under the restoration, here he presents a very complex reality. And it goes to what you said, journalistic corruption and people writing positive reviews or negative reviews for money and being planted within the audience of, of a play to react a certain way. And it's it's extremely corrupt. And well, the world of France that he depicts, you know, like you said, the 1830s, 1840s, They've just been through several decades of extremely tumultuous history. You know, the, the the revolution and the reign of terror, followed by the Napoleonic era. And so what you see is you have you have a sort of a, a bourgeois that's kind of finally or an elite that's finally uh, getting its its legs back under it. But you also have this um, kind of liberal, artistic, journalistic culture that was made possible by all all the um, the tumult 
of the previous years. And there's this real clash of cultures. And you get this feeling that the um, the liberals, the journalists, the, the theater people, they're not, you know, they're hardly pure of heart. And they don't necessarily, you know, they're, they're pretty decadent. And they don't necessarily know what to do with all this new found freedom. And I just, I just found that fascinating. Um, so, okay. The story of the, in brief, the story of, of the uh, book and the movie in, involves a uh, sensitive young man from the provinces named Lu- is Lucien, uh, who's a poet. And he's also like a kind of a member of a lapsed aristocratic family. And he works as you know an assistant at a print shop owned by his sister and her husband. And he's having an affair with a beautiful local gentry woman. And she takes him to Paris. Mm-hmm where he immediately, society immediately discards him and he falls in with this uh, very sleazy journalistic crowd. But I, to me, I, I mean, you know, you, you've certainly been through your share of, um, of, of media um, circles and you've seen all levels of hackery at all levels of the media. It reminded me a lot, the newspaper he went to, which is actually called Le Satan, <laughs> reminded me a lot of Gawker, you know, and the way it operated. Maybe not Gawker may not have been taking direct bribes, but they certainly kind of made themselves the story and created news and turned turned it their their sort of moderately talented hacks into big local celebrities at the time. Well, the point is well taken, and I did think of Gawker, but I also thought of more, I think, more specific parallels. There was a journalist who was hired by the Washington Post, Ben Dominic, to write this red state feature to lend some conservative opinion to what is a mostly a liberal newspaper. And he was fired and, and there were some issues around alleged plagiarism in his work, but also allegations that he had accepted bribes from a Malaysian agent to portray Malaysia positively in certain pieces that he wrote. And so here you have influence peddling and paying a journalist for a positive portrayal. And that is exactly what we see in this film. And there are these critics who are being paid to write positive reviews or negative reviews on which the fortunes of an aspiring uh, dramatist or or novelist or poet or whatever it may be depend. So I thought of, yes, uh, Gawker is a good example, but there are many, many out there and some just much more direct analogs than you might believe possible. But that's the world we're living in. Yeah, I mean, yes, Gawker may not be a direct analog in terms of the payola. It's just in terms of the sort of general culture of decadence and corruption and influence peddling. I was I was fascinated by, you know, because let's face it, these little magazines that Lucien and his uh, compatriots are running for, you know, they they they're they are transitory at best. You know, no no one alive today cares about what kinds of notices uh, some boulevard theater piece in Paris received in 1839. You know, it, it's completely irrelevant. And that's that's what I found so interesting, you know, that Lost Illusions refers to Lucien's, you know, sort of, he had these uh, grand uh, ambitions ab- about art and beauty, and he just, he was infinitely corrupted by the temptations of the city. And it was just, it's such a, a timeless story that could be applied to like, any um, major culture at any time, but particularly to uh, modern Western cultures. Um, and so I, I, I don't know. I just felt like the movie was just captured it all so beautifully. Beautifully is the operative word. It's a sumptuous picture. It's just gorgeous to look at. 
And so much care and craft has gone into every frame of the film. As I said before, I was really blown away. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a prudish movie either by any means. I mean, this is a French movie. There's a lot of sex. <laughs> There's a lot of nudity. There's a lot of drugs. You know, it's it's not boring. You know, the way we talk about it makes it make sound like it could be kind of dull. But, I mean, there's it is not dull <laughs> by any stretch. It is not dull, but what I, I think I really appreciated above all is the authenticity and, as I said before, the dialogue, the accents. And I appreciated this film all the more because I had a somewhat disappointing experience when I went to see Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. Did you happen to see that? Oh, yes, of course. So there is a movie that I think got some positive reviews, but it seemed to me that they wanted to make a movie that communicated something of the essence of Frenchness, but they weren't willing to make the full investment. So here you have characters who are supposed to be French, but it's a commercial movie. So they're speaking English with British accents that I guess are supposed to sound exotic and and foreign. And they have these quirks and mannerisms that are supposed to convey something about Frenchness. But to me, it just felt extremely mannered and contrived and quirky in the worst sense of that term. So I really, I thought that French Dispatch was kind of a mess. And after having seen that and then going into this movie, wow, this this movie is, uh, this really is quintessentially French and a very immersive experience. And uh, I, I think I appreciated it all the more. Yeah. And I think French Dispatch is an interesting comparison too, because that's also a movie about journalism that I feel like kind of missed, missed the mark. Not, not in every sense. There are a couple of moments in there that I think worked, but missed the mark about journalism as well. And I, I will agree with you that uh, Lost Illusions, if you, it, it is the the most French movie you're going to see this year. That's for sure. <laughs> and well, and you know, and it's also based on one of, you know, what I would consider one of the, you know, four or five uh, best novels ever, ever written in French, you know, alongside you know, a sentimental education and remembrance of things past and a few, a few others. So, I mean, it's really is a, um, a tremendous work. Mm-hmm. I mean, what else, can, what else can you say? And other than you know, I um, I'm, I'm glad to be I'm glad to no longer be a sensitive young man in my twenties. I've already lost my all, all my illusions, and now I can just kind of sit back and go to the movies. <laughs> all right, Michael, thank you so much for stopping by here uh, and uh, for your expertise. Okay, Neil, have a great weekend. July, and in the past, that meant no TV. There was no good TV on in the summer. Maybe you'd, maybe you'd watch some sports or something, but you know, the summer was for going outside or at least going to the movies. But this is a different era. This is the era of streaming, and there is always new TV to watch, and July is no exception. Rachel Llewellyn, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor, has is doing the Lord's work by every month summarizing what's coming up in streaming and she has a piece about july up now and we're going to talk a little bit about what's coming up this month hello rachel hello thank you for having me always a pleasure so all right so let's just we'll just dive right in here um we're going to start with uh with netflix netflix is uh is not a the trendy streaming service but it is the one that the vast majority of people watch and i don't know i read your your summary and i felt like netflix 
had the the best range of offering new offerings this month. And of course, we got to start with with Stranger Things, the final two episodes of season four of Stranger Things. The final two episodes, I say, but they're going to last. You know, there's like four and a half hours of content right there. Yes, it's going to be a marathon. Yeah. You know, by the time this airs, which will be Monday, July fourth, I'm I'm guessing um, I will have made it through those hours. I have not watched the Stranger Things yet. I don't know. Have you have you been are you a Stranger Things uh viewer? I have been keeping up with the seasons. Uh yes. And you know, I watched the first half of season 4 with a good deal of excitement like a lot of fans did. Um I I don't feel like it disappointed. It really came out of the starting blocks with a lot of really good energy and good themes. The approach they took for this season is uh, more the psychological angle we you know not to i don't know if i can plot spoil or anything but the <laughs> yeah there's a very uh compelling villain from the upside down named vecna we won't spoil anything else about him but i felt like the stuff the stuff that took place in hawkins indiana around that character uh, w- was really s- creepy and fun and compelling you know, I, I wasn't so into the Russia plot line. I, I, you know, I felt like that went on way too long. Um, but man, you know, I, I'm not, I have not been the biggest Stranger Things fan in the past, but that stuff, that, that Vecna stuff was kind of pop culture classic. It is. It really is. And, and I think everyone agrees with you because the finale came out 12 hours ago as of recording this podcast. And reportedly, it crashed Netflix service for about 13,000 users for around half an hour or so. So we know that the demand is there. Um, at the end of the first half of season four, we now know a little more about Vecna is since he's sort of revealed himself. And his presence has become solidified as kind of an allegory for depression, anxiety, uh, unresolved trauma, mental health in general. Um, and we don't quite know how Vecna's story is going to intermingle with Eleven's, you know, emotional transition that she's going through and how that's going to play into the larger evil plans. But we we do know um, that it's been spoiled that there's going to be deaths. Um, yes, so, deaths. Yes. That's the big talk on on who's going to die. And, and I don't know because it's been 12 hours, but now some rabid fans already know. So I'm going to have to check Twitter, but I don't well, want to plot spoil for myself. I'm ignoring Twitter. It's a good it's a good reason to ignore Twitter. Any reason to ignore Twitter is is a good one. <laughs> you know, I will say, you know, the model that Netflix used for this season, you know, sort of splitting it into two parts actually seems to have worked to, you know, to draw out the, the suspension. We've talked on the show before about how sort of the binge watching net model of Netflix is um, feels a little dated at this point and that the shows that parse it out week to week uh, are actually creating more conversation. But the way they split Stranger Things in half seemed like is a really good decision. So obviously Stra- Stranger Things is at the top of the entertainment pyramid, but there's some, some other stuff on Netflix that also uh, is going to um, compel people. There's a new version of Jane Austen's Persuasion, which my wife was cooing about extremely excitedly yesterday. I came home uh, and she she was like almost jumping up and down. She she finally discovered the trailer for this thing. Now I I could care less about another Jane Austen adaptation, but you know this this looks like a standard and reliable uh, adaptation. 
Yes, yes. People care and about this one, apparently. Um, and with Jane Austen material, her fans and readers have a really strong sense of proprietorship, not just over her novels and her content, but her voice and how she tells stories and her intent with these characters. So you don't want to mess with an Austen fan. It's worse than a Stranger Things fan. Yeah, you don't want to let him down. And when this, when this, I agree. <laughs> as you know, huh? You've got one in your household. When, when well, I'm, mar- I'm married to an Austen <laughs> and a Stranger Things fan, Thanks. and uh, and it it, it does it create. I I, be, I have to walk on eggshells. Don't criticize Jane Austen is what it comes down to. And this one, um, this one stars Dakota Johnson uh, as Anne Elliot. The, the heroine of, of Stranger Things, and all Henry Golding um, from Crazy Rich Agents, among other uh, other places, is in it as well. And yeah, I, don't know, I mean, I feel like I could skip it personally, but I, I recognize that it is an unskippable experience for for true believers. And what I find interesting is that it's on Netflix. It's not on PBS. It's not in theaters. You know, it's not on. It's, it, it is it is a Netflix project. Yes, I, I think Bridgerton kind of paved the way for that and like Downton Abbey and like all of these like, you know, period sagas sort of laid, laid the paving for that. I think the director, Carrie Cracknell, will do a good job. I think some were afraid she was going to give it like the Baz Lorman treatment, you know, with uh, Romeo and Juliet because the, the trailer is a little... Uh, it's a little modernized, takes a few liberties. It's a little winky winky. Yes. Winky is a great term for it, but you know, Cracknell, the director, she, she comes from theater. She has a wonderful, she's just just this great bright star in the art and theater theater world. And she's sort of a phenom. So I have faith that she'll, she'll do this story very well. She's used to taking these, um, you know, classic narratives and, you know, translating them. So I, I have faith in her. I, I'll be excited to check it out. Although, again, it's not it's not my thing either, but <laughs> I'll give it a shot. I, I really love uh, Dakota Johnson. Yeah, my wife is going to be plugged into Netflix uh, like like the, the those tendrils into <laughs> Vecna's back this month. Because in addition to Stranger Things and Persuasion, there's also season four of Virgin River. <laughs> coming out on Netflix. And, you know, that is a show. Uh, I would watch Stranger Things uh, if you gave me a beer or something. I just not, I'll watch Stranger Things. I'd watch Persuasion if you gave me a beer. But I, you'd have to – I don't know what you'd have to do to make me catch up with Virgin River at this point. But, you know, Regina, my wife, loves it uh, for what it is, which is a – like you say, a cross between Northern Exposure and a Lifetime movie. And there's a nurse who moves to a small Northern California town and befriends all the cr- wacky people who live there, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> this show is so cookie cutter, but at the same time, it's so terribly interesting because it the question of the hour that everyone is asking about this show is why is it so popular? I mean, Netflix has a ton of movies that are like this, you know, comfort viewing, this, you know, sort of saccharine, harmless stories. But this series, for some reason has gotten renewed over and over. It's just that sort of comfort viewing. They've, they've managed to hybridize that comfort viewing that comes from lifetime content with just enough serialization to carry those soapy elements forward and appeal to viewers who just churn through that content at higher rates. I mean, you know, just applying the, the soap formula to that, people are going to watch. All right, there's all, there's not all lady content on... Um, 
on Netflix. There's also uh, The Gray Man, which is a thriller directed by the Russo brothers who made um, Avengers Endgame and Extraction. And this is like a, a CIA, international CIA thriller starring Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans and Ana de Armas. I mean, I feel like that's a movie. That feels like that's a movie that should have been in theaters, you know, but, but, you know, we have these like very high budget thrillers that are just popping up on our TV. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic for sure. I think that producers are realizing that the money is at home and they're still willing to sink the production value into making a technically quality product because people have high quality viewing devices at home and it's becoming a more optimal option. So I think if streaming producers can keep track and can can keep up with that level of, of theatrical production, then they stand to make money across the board, not just in theaters, but also on streaming. So I think it's a smart move. I, I had actually mixed this movie up with the with Chris Pratt's new action series, uh, The Terminal List. It's like similar, you know, good spook fights bad spook and you know, somehow at the end, freedom wins. I guess I don't know. There's all there's always kind of a B list thriller starring a Chris. On there's always a Hemsworth, Pratt, or Evans uh, movie on streaming services. Right, based on it's a genre. <laughs> it is, and it's based on all those dog-eared, you know, uh, mass market paperbacks in your grandpa's den. It's a it's a winning franchise. It's a winning pattern, and we like to watch Ryan Gosling get all bloodied up. And I, you know, I feel like the guy makes a pretty decent living just kind of standing there brooding in a leather jacket. Think for yourself, but yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> I would Evans from Avengers. You know, he's he's really become a darling for the Russos because they directed you know the Avengers franchise and they're directing the Gray Man. So I like I like him as an actor. He's sort of a wild card. He's been doing these comic franchise roles for like almost two decades, but he also chooses really interesting roles like with Knives Out and Snowpiercer and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. So like he tends to bring a little something interesting to these you know, classic sci- sci-fi type roles. He's my personal favorite, Chris. Maybe. I don't know. I don't actually don't care. I don't, I don't, have, a dog. <laughs> I don't have a dog in the Chris fight. All right, well, let's move over to um, the number two streaming service, which is Hulu. Uh, there's a couple of things to talk about. The most important thing on Hulu in July is a, a new season of What We Do in the Shadows, which is one of my, my favorite TV comedy right now. I think the funniest show on TV, and, you know, the, it's, it's shocking to me that um, it, it just keeps getting funnier as the characters get deeper. And I, that trailer for season four looks absolutely hilarious. Yes, as season four brings the cast back together in a way after kind of dispersing them and having them interact in more isolated fashion in season three, we find the action coming to a head and the gang is sort of getting back together to be what it was originally more of like a, almost like a hangout type of situational humor. So I like that it's getting back to that original kind of format. Um, I'm interested to see how uh, how Mark Prost's character evolves as he has burst out of his own chest in an infant form. Please tell me you have heard this. Yes, baby Colin Robinson. <laughs> there you go. Baby Colin Robinson. Yeah. So, you know, things are happening. The world is moving along in a very practical fashion, but they managed to bring this really beautiful 
absurd supernaturalist element to it. And I've noticed that they do a really good job bringing in uh, metaphysical traditions from all over the world and from different people groups around the, the globe, just bringing in their traditions and supernatural stories. I find that really interesting. Yeah, it's a great, it's such a funny show and, 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 and very smart and just across the board, hilarious performances. Meanwhile, HBO Max has some cool looking stuff this month, including a new show from Nathan Fielder, uh, the creator and host of the hilarious Comedy Central show, Nathan For You. Uh, the show's called The Rehearsal, and I'm, I'm intrigued to see what this thing is about. Yes, if you like cringe comedy or really like squirmy, borderline uncomfortable comedy, um, you want to check it out at least just to kind of see what it's about. Nathan Fielder has a pretty sterling reputation for doing this sort of absurdism very well. He's known for this kind of provocative comedy. And I say provocative not in the sense that it's like blue or controversial but the humor lies in literally prov provoking normal people who aren't aware of the gag it sort of pushes them to participate through their discomfort and somehow that ends up being a really funny formula um, his new show the rehearsal is throwing major truman show vibes the trailer was really hazy it just shows him like staring at a bank of monitors but i feel like he's trying to make some profound statement about you know living life and i hope it becomes clearer and better executed when the show debuts because that the trailer was downright unhelpful. <laughs> it was um, very um, inscrutable, I guess is, is, is a word for it. But, you know, again, like he, he is really funny and uh, you know, it's not like HBO doesn't put up stuff that isn't good, but you'd think that they would put their, their spin on it and at least request something uh, interesting. I'm guessing the rehearsal is, is not going to disappoint. There's a couple other things on uh, HBO Max coming up in July at the end of the month. There's a, a six-part um, documentary series from Ethan Hawke about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Six parts feels a bit long. Like it's like giving them the Ken Burns treatment. <laughs> but they are they are such an interesting Hollywood couple, and they both had such interesting careers, both on and off screen. And I'm, I'm interested to see how that looks. And also, we'll close with the LeBron James-produced Remake of the 1990 comedy jam House Party. Uh, kid and play are obviously uh, no longer kids, and they no longer play. But they're there. There's going to be. I'm hoping that the new kid and play, whoever they are, uh, when they have equally uh, amazing hairstyles. Oh man! If if only. Sadly, I've seen screenshots, and unfortunately, they've they've modernized and updated everything. But you know, we we so deserve a lighthearted fun party movie that is like the whole plot is just like circulating around a house party we need lighthearted movies like that where the biggest obstacle in your life the biggest stress you have is like beating another person in a dance competition sounds like my life honestly <laughs> I know. I wish it's a, it's an awesome movie. I mean, I recommend everybody watch watch the original. Christopher Reed, who is kid of Kid and Play, uh, was sort of asked how he felt about the reboot, and he was all about it. I don't think the other member play, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the gentleman's name. I don't think the other member of the of the duo was as enthusiastic. Didn't want to be involved in the movie, but Christopher Reed was was all about it. He endorsed LeBron James being behind it, LeBron James Production Company. He said he's he if he's behind it, it's gonna be good. He's gonna do it justice. And he said it's time to pass the ball to the next generation to, you know, re retell that story. 
saying, you know, we love it, but it can't go on forever. So the new house party endorsed by kid, not endorsed by, not endorsed by play. (laughs) Make your own judgment. Yes. All right. Well, we'll be busy this month watching TV like every month. And uh, Rachel Llewellyn will be back for everything that's streaming in August. You actually watch all this stuff? (laughs) I never stop gleaning for the harvest, Neil. You are as plugged in to TV as anybody on the planet. we, We thank you for your service. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Television. All right. Thanks, Rachel. All the stuff we talked about will be airing on various things this month and for a long time afterwards, but they're going to be premiering this month. Also, thanks to Kavajalinas for talking to me about the controversy around Woke Lightyear and why that movie flopped at the box office. And thanks to Michael Washburn for stopping in and sharing his expertise on Honoré de Balzac and Lost Illusions with me. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. And remember, if a scary monster comes to visit you in your house, just put on your headphones and listen to your favorite song. You'll be safe. Trust me. It's a proven method that streaming TV has taught us. We will talk to you soon. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. You need real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. Audio Hopper. Real news. Narrated. In the App Store.